Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Because in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, in other words, in the grave, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's go before the Lord uh, as we pray that the Spirit uh, opens our eyes to understand His Word. Gracious God and Father, we do confess that though Your Word is clear, we find that our own Uh, Ignorance and even our own sin clouds and disrupts those things that are so clearly found in your word that without your spirit's working, we would not be able to understand your word aright. And so we ask that your spirit would breathe on our hearts and encourage us and strengthen us to understand as we contemplate your word that we might I cling to your word and faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think perhaps one of the most pressing questions ever to vex the heart of believers is that nagging question we find in the midst of suffering. Do my prayers fall on deaf ears? It might be a prayer for deliverance from a variety of situations. It might be Uh, deliverance from uh, particular mental anguish or from bullies at school. might be a prayer for deliverance on account of physical sickness or perhaps deliverance in terms of an assurance of pardon that the Lord is in fact kind and merciful as as we look back on our lives and see a life of regret over the things that we have done wrong as we've offended a holy God, we think, will God be merciful to me? I think it's so easy to affirm that God is merciful to others, but then when we ask, would the Lord be merciful to me, the question becomes much more difficult because we think, uh, nobody has sinned as much as me. Nobody has fallen into the same exact sin as I have. Will the Lord continue to show his steadfast love. What we find in many ways is that this psalm uh, really feels like a generic psalm. What do I mean by that? Well, the psalm doesn't seem to be tethered to any historical event. Uh, the, the language that David uses seems to have a certain amount of ambiguity where you ask, what is it that he is praying for? And we'll consider those uh, questions. I think there are two or three chief questions we have to ask as we consider the intent of the psalm. And yet, I think that David, under inspiration of the Spirit, made this psalm in many ways intentionally ambiguous in terms of the prayer, so that this prayer might fit the variety of needs that befall the people of God. 
that this, in other words, serves as a one-size-fits-all sort of prayer. So that David, under inspiration of the Spirit, might drive home an unambiguous point. That the Lord, in fact, hears and answers prayer. We'll consider this psalm from three particular vantage points. First, we'll consider the matter of sickness as we see in verses 1 to 3. Then we'll consider death in verses 4 to 7. And finally, the matter of deliverance in verses 8 to 10. So sickness, death, and deliverance. Well, the superscript, what begins prior to verse 1, gives us something of a foretaste of the tenor and tone of the psalm that lies before us. The superscript begins by saying, as your ESV puts it, according to the Sheminith. Um, quite literally, the Hebrew there means according to the eighth part. Uh, the, if you have the NAS, uh, and in the footnote, the NAS says it means probably something like according to the lower octave. Right? You know, you have eight notes uh, in a scale, this is according to the eighth. The idea is that this is a low song. This is a melancholy song. I uh, think of how uh, the blues or those songs in a minor key, as it were, uh, is the type of psalm we see before us. It is a psalm of supplication. Here is David in great need. David begins with a prayer with a great plea for mercy. O Lord, do not chastise me in your fury. Rather, be gracious to me. It's quite clear that David sees himself as being in the wrong. David has sinned, but the question we ask is, what has he done? What we find is David is rather unclear. He does not specify the content of his sin, and yet he cries out for healing. It seems clear that whatever it is that David has done, he is now reaping the consequences of his actions. His sickness, whatever it may be, is a sickness unto death. It is a sickness that has caused his bones to tremble and to quake. And so, this raises the very first question we have to ask as we try to give our attention to the uh, the Word of the Lord. Is this a physical sickness? Or is this a spiritual sickness? Is this a physical sickness like Hezekiah? You remember in Isaiah chapter 38, here is Hezekiah who is sick on his deathbed and the Word of the Lord comes to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah says, I don't want to die. Will the dead praise you? The word of the Lord comes to Hezekiah and says, because you have prayed this prayer, I will spare your life another uh, 10 or 15 years. Is this another incident like that? Where we have an individual praying to the Lord to deliver him from actual death? Or is this a spiritual sickness like we see in Psalm 32? Remember, we find in Psalm 32 yet another confession of sin, probably uh, alongside Psalm 51, two of the great, um, most well-known psalms that deal with the confession of sin. David himself describes his bones as wasting away, describing the spiritual sickness wrought in his soul because he has refused up till that point to bring his sins before the Lord and confess his sins and be 
healed. Is that what we're dealing with here? In other words, are we dealing with a sickness in the body? Are we dealing with a sickness in the soul? Are we dealing with a physical infirmity? Are we dealing with someone who has not confessed the sin and the guilt is racking their conscience? Well, David does not say. Either way, however, David sees his calamity, whatever it is, as a result of his sin. That's why he begins by saying, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your fury. Rather, be gracious and merciful to me. Be it a sickness of the soul or a bodily sickness, David comes before the Lord mourning first and foremost, not the consequence of his sin, as much as it is the sin itself. O Lord, be gracious to me. It is you who I have offended. I think that reminds us ultimately what sin is. It is a sickness of the soul. What madness lies in the heart of man, that man would spend his life pursuing the very thing that destroys him. You may have heard this before. It's a popular saying that I've heard among preachers. I don't know who who came up with it or I attribute it to them. But sin is insanity. It's a madness where one decides to pursue those things that wreak havoc on him in both body and soul. Why does a man cheat on his wife after years of marriage? Why does a man steal from his work and lose his job and reap the consequences knowing full well there's no way he can escape from this? Why is it that we do so many things uh, thinking that we can get away with it, thinking that they'll give us, uh, 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 knowing that it'll give us maybe a temporary pleasure, but thinking, no way uh, will I get caught? Deluding ourselves, and then when the consequences fall upon our heads, it rattles us to the core. We see here that David recognizes the consequence of his own sin, and those consequences have come to haunt him. All these consequences, as he describes here, bring a terror to his very bones. They shake him to the very core. And yet we see it as a mourning not just simply over the consequences, but over the sin itself. And I think we have to stop and and ask ourselves, do we mourn sin in that same way? Here's a man who's flooding his tears at night over his own sin? Does sin terrify us for how we have offended the Lord and grieved His Spirit? Or do we treat sin as a light thing where we treat, therefore, forgiveness as a light thing? Oh yeah, I messed up today. I guess nobody's perfect. Lord, forgive me. Let me go on and continue reveling in X sin once again. Or do we see that we have offended the majesty of God Himself. How do we view sin? Do we truly mourn it? Or have we so seared our consciences that we can still sleep soundly at night without ever seeking the Lord's gracious pardon? What is it that Christ teaches His disciples to pray? To pray daily, forgive us our debts. Is this something that you know, a portion of a prayer that we might remember once a week, once every other week. Oh yeah, I forgot. Oh yeah, please forgive me my sins. Perhaps that shows us how lightly we treat sin. 
Are we like the adulteress of Proverbs chapter 30 that says that she eats, she has her fill, she wipes her mouth, says, I've done nothing wrong. Certainly here in this psalm, we see that calamity looms over David, yes, but we see that the cause of his sorrow is not simply that he got caught. It's not a worldly sorrow. Rather, it is a godly sorrow, as Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 7. Here is a man who recognizes that he has offended a holy God. He is sore troubled, and so he asks, but as for you, O Lord, how long? In other words, when will I see the light of your countenance fall upon me? When will I see your mercy once more? And so whatever the calamity it is that David is facing, we find that it's not merely existential. It's troubling his conscience, but it's one in which the threat of death looms ever near. Death provides and presents itself as a clear and present danger to David. And so David prays to the Lord, return. In other words, come back. Where have you gone? Do not abandon me, but rather rescue my soul, rescue my life. Why is it that the Lord would hear David's prayer if David has offended the Lord so? Why should the Lord God save? It's clearly not on account of David's own righteousness. David has already made that abundantly clear. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your fury. Here's a man who recognizes he got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Calamity comes. David is somehow responsible for this calamity, whatever that calamity might be. Yet what is it that he prays? He does not say, save me, O Lord, because I am innocent in the matter. We'll find this when we look at Psalm 7 in a few weeks. That David prays for the Lord to deliver him because of a particular instance in which David had done no wrong. But this is not the case here in Psalm 6. Rather, David says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Save me because of your covenant faithfulness. Here is David throwing himself at the mercy of God. says, I have no reason to plead salvation. I have no grounds to say, you owe this to me, God. All I can say is, please save me because you are faithful even when I am unfaithful. And as David sees the threat of death looming, he asks, how, is this how everything ends? Does this end with me dead in the grave? After all you have promised, how is it that a corpse can praise you? How can the dead exult in your name? This is clearly not some last-minute calamity, but something that has been building over time. Whatever the trouble it is that befalls David, it has led to prolonged sorrow. Look at verse 6. He says, I have been wearied by these troubles every night. Not just a single night. This isn't just kind of an afternoon you know, frustration. This is not simply David you know, saying, oh, I forgot to study for my exam tomorrow. Every night... My couch is flooded with tears. There is no relief. There is no vacation from my trouble. Is there no end in sight? My eyes are wasting away from this vexation. Will the Lord, in fact, 
hear me. Now, up until this point, David's sighs and tears uh, seem exclusively focused on his own sin. And so in verse 7, we see something of a surprising turn as he now kind of throws another factor uh, in the scenario. As he addresses yet another calamity. Why? My eyes have wasted from my tears. Why? On account of my foes. See, the threat that confronts David is not merely uh, what we would call an existential or internal threat, though that certainly seems to be the case. There seems to be some type of external threat facing David. This raises yet another question that we have to ask. What is the threat? Are David's foes flesh and blood enemies who have surrounded him all about various scenarios in which you read in First and Second Samuel or First uh, Kings or First uh, Chronicles, where David's physical foes surround him and he prays for deliverance and the Lord delivers him? Is that what we have here? Or is this a metaphor for the grave itself? In other words, has David gotten so sick that death looms near? Perhaps a physical sickness, we don't know. But is that the case where uh, death looms so near that he sees death as the great enemy? That is, in fact, how New Testament, the New Testament describes death. 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. John chapter 11, Jesus comes to Lazarus' grave as, as, as a, you know, it's, it's like the gunfight at the OK Corral. Jesus comes and he's angered in his heart at the sight of death and the devastation that death has wrought upon his own close friends. Which one is it? Which case do we have here? Is this merely a metaphor for death? Very strong, and and again, not to delimit the reality of death. Or is he dealing with a physical foe? Is he being surrounded by armed forces? Well, again, David does not elaborate which one it is. This is, in many ways, an ambiguous prayer. And yet, just because we don't know the exact circumstances does not mean uh, that this is to give us doubt. Rather, this is to give us great encouragement that this is a psalm that fits multiple situations to remind us that regardless of the situation, we have a God who hears us. A God who answers and is willing to deliver. You know, as for me, as I, I kind of been wrestling with these questions, trying to understand what is the most accurate and faithful context that we have for this psalm, you know, I still feel like I'm torn. Uh, I, I do think that in some ways there might be a real physical force that is threatening, but I'm not sure. And yet I think that should not cause us uh, not to trust Scripture. That again, I think David is intentionally ambiguous to remind us that whatever the threat is, you have a Savior who bends a listening ear, who is both willing and able to save. Like I said, I do think that here we might have a real physical flesh and blood foe facing David because of what he says here in verse 8, where he says, well, he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here are enemies that have rebelled against the Most High God, those who practice iniquity and transgression. 
And however, be it flesh and blood foes, or be it death itself, which again is considered to be the last great enemy as well of the people of God. I think it is still fascinating that David's primary concern, as we saw front-loaded in this prayer, regards his own sin and how he has offended a holy God. And now David proclaims, and the face of his foes, whoever these foes may be, the Lord has heard my blubbering prayers. The Lord has heard my stammering and my weeping. Not only has he heard, but he's received my prayer. In other words, it's not simply that, oh yeah, the Lord heard your prayer. He just decided he's not going to call back. He's going to leave you in the lurch. No, David says, no, the Lord has heard. And he, he's receiving my prayer right now. Whoever David's enemies are, we see a great reversal now befalls them. Look at verse 2 and 3. Paul says, my bones and my soul are greatly troubled. But now at, here at the end of the psalm in verse 10, who is it that is greatly troubled instead? It is my enemies. The horror that befell me has led to salvation, and yet now that same horror will now befall my own foes. My enemies are hoisted on their own petard. Here we have a prayer of faith, and from David's vantage point, the way in which David prays at the end of this chapter, David's praying from the perspective that he has not yet been delivered. He's saying, the Lord has answered my prayer. He's going to deliver me. All my enemies shall be ashamed. They shall be greatly troubled. Here's a man who rests confident, though, you know, you think of Psalm 23, the Lord prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This gives David great confidence, even when the deliverance has not yet fully come. David knows who is his rock and his fortress, his refuge, his God, in whom he can trust. Here from David's own vantage point, this is a prayer that still awaits fulfillment. And yet, I think as we consider these subtle nuances in this psalm, this is a prayer that does, in fact, find its fulfillment at the cross. There's so much in this psalm in which Gethsemane is lurking in the background, especially the sound and the cry of judgment. On the night of Christ's own betrayal, Jesus enters a garden and he cites this very psalm. My soul is exceedingly troubled. Hebrews 5 describes the events of Jesus in the garden as the very night in which he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears that he might in fact be delivered from death, that he might be delivered from the grave. The Christ himself had done no wrong. Here Christ enters a garden to undo the miseries wrought by the first Adam. To undo the sin and its curse, that the curse might be reckoned with once and for all. Jesus enters the garden, he prays, and weariness overcomes him. He weeps, though not on the bed of a lofty prince, but rather as a man without a home. One who prays with such vehemence that blood pours down his face as he bears the fury of the Father on behalf of sinners. 
The Gospel tells us that Christ's prayers were in fact answered as He was delivered from the grave. And yet even as Christ hangs on a cross, His enemies surround Him asking Him where His deliverance is to be found. His enemies taunt Him as death looms closer and closer and closer. And yet we find as the great surprise and the very thing of which the whole Old Testament points that it is by the death of Christ that death itself, the great enemy, is slain once and for all. And it's by the cross, Paul tells us in Colossians 2, that the enemies of Christ are in fact put to open shame. Using that same language we see here in Psalm 6, verse 10. We find Christ quoting the psalm in one other place as well. At the final judgment, Jesus himself speaks of the events that will befall the final day in Matthew chapter 7. When those same enemies that sought to put Christ to death stand before him, when all the nations stand before Christ who presides as judge of the living and the dead, so many will appear before Christ and say, haven't we done all these things? And what is it that Jesus says? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Jesus himself is the judge of heaven and earth, is citing once again Psalm chapter 6. In a stunning reversal where Christ's enemies once had the upper hand, now they are the ones who are exceedingly troubled with none to deliver them. So I think, I think what we see before us then is the psalm of our Savior. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 24 that all the psalms and the prophets speak of the suffering of Christ and the glory in which he is to enter upon his resurrection from the dead. Here is the psalm of our Savior, one who undergoes suffering on our behalf. Christ was sinless, and yet He comes as the vicarious sin-bearer, as our high priest, to deliver us from death and the grave and from all of our enemies. And so there's a great consolation that comes to us in this psalm, that Christ comes to comfort the feeble and the frail. As we read and hear elsewhere in the Scriptures that the Lord is in fact near the brokenhearted, He hears the cry of the repentant. That though we deserve death, the Lord has in His mercy opened up a way to deliver us whatever that circumstance may be. And that is why I think David, under inspiration of the Spirit, was so ambiguous as to those questions that we've asked. Because it is to drive home a single unambiguous point that the Lord is willing and able to hear our cry and to save us. Whatever the circumstances, be that threat internal of our own sin or external, a real flesh and blood foe, or death itself. Be it a figurative death or a real physical threat, even if those circumstances are due to us because of our own sin, we find that the Lord in His covenant faithfulness, in His steadfast love, still is willing to deliver. 
And so our prayers ought to reflect David's, where we recognize the reality of this fallen world and we recognize our own failures. We don't have to come before the Lord and try to uh, uh, fudge the narrative to make us look like we are more righteous than we are. Because the basis of our prayer is not our own righteousness. The confidence that we have in prayer and going before the Holy God is not on account of our own righteousness, but on account of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 6, verse 4. As we heard in the call to worship this evening, the Lord breaks that He might heal. In our Lord's own providence, He leads us through certain trials and situations to recognize the greater need that we have. It's something more important than perhaps uh, uh, deliverance from a physical ailment. Though in fact the Lord does deliver us through many of those trials and will ultimately deliver us from all of those trials by the resurrection on the last day. Yet, the Lord brings us through these trials that we might see the grace of God and dealing with the greatest problem that each and every one of us face, which is the reality of sin itself. Such Uh, is the reason why Scripture says that it is by Christ's wounds that we are, in fact, healed. That sin, as it strikes the soul, is a great sickness. We find the cross is the antidote to deliver us from that great spiritual cancer. That Christ, by His death and His resurrection from the dead, has triumphed over death so that death would not have the last word. And so the cross of Christ comes to comfort us so that even in the midst of the veil of tears, even when we have not yet seen that great and final deliverance, we can stand confident that there is a God who hears us and that He is willing and that He is able to save because He has given us His Son. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word and we ask that You would use Your Word to instill in us the great confidence that we have that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Deliver us, we pray, from our sins and our sorrows, that we might give thanks to God who raises the dead and delivers us from the power of the grave. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.